to the How Could You Podcast. I'm Lauren Tossi. And I'm Ryan Tossi. In podcasts, no one can hear you scream. Are we going to discuss the scientific validity of that statement? Nerd! (laughs) (laughs) Well, welcome everyone. This is season four of the How Could You Podcast. If you have never joined us before, we are two people who fell in love at a movie theater and never quite left. We started this podcast to fix some serious gaps in our film knowledge and then just to discuss some of our favorite film debates, although... This episode is definitely going back to form because one of us has a massive gap in their film knowledge that we took care of for this season for premiere. But yes, like any good creators, we've decided to just make the rules up as we go. <laughs> this is our podcast. We listen to every word we say. Yes. So a lot of you may know this, that in addition to our podcast, we also have a film series that we got to start. Ryan, do you want to tell them a little bit about some of the stuff we have coming up with and how it's been going so far? Absolutely. So for those of you that can make it out uh, to Allentown, Pennsylvania, the last Saturday of each month, we are doing Nostalgia Cinema, which we've talked about on the show before. We got to have our first one back in January, which was The Goonies. Uh, I thought it was a great show. We had a great crowd and turnout, uh, which was really exciting. We got to have a really fun conversation conversation after the show like for 15 minutes you know it's just sitting down with your friends in like a living room and and watching a good movie and then talking after and and i loved the the people that came out really appreciative what what was your thoughts it was so fun like and i think anything when you watch a movie that you've watched many times before but you watch it with a live audience again like there's something just about the reactions to the jokes like where people laugh what things people seem to like kind of attach onto they're always like fun to like hear so like that made it so fun which is is making me really excited for the showings coming forward just to hear people's reactions to these films so in February we have uh, Eddie Murphy's uh, comedy classic Coming to America which we got to talk (laughs) about in in, uh, season 2 which are really excited to do that again and then in March we are over the moon excited we just booked it this week Uh, we are going to bring you on March 26th at 1 p.m. Please keep in mind that the times do sometimes vary, so that will show will be at 1 o'clock, but we are bringing you, Lauren? Almost Famous! Yes! Ah, so excited! So we can't, can't wait. wait to talk about all things can't Almost wait. Famous with you. Or see the movie on the big screen is going to be just uh, so much fun. To hear it is going to be great in those, you know, the, in, a, in a theater. It's going to be a lot of fun. We can't wait to have everybody out. Yeah, I've never seen it in a theater, so I think I'm just excited yeah. for that experience. And You know, one of the reasons we picked it is because, as you all know, it is the most wonderful time of the year. (laughs) It is Oscar season. Um, Almost Famous was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, uh, which is my really, like, ham-fisted way of transitioning us so I can talk about the Oscars. Lauren Tazzi, you have... Two minutes to discuss the Oscars with myself and the audience. I just really, I would file a dispute with the commissioner of this podcast that I should be giving more time than that. Um, But for those of you attuned to my fast pace uh, talking, uh, buckle in. It's about to get faster. All right, so two minutes starting. And here we go. Okay, I am very excited about these year's nominees. I do think that this is a year that's going to be quite unpredictable insofar as I think we are going to see the wealth spread around. I think at one point during the Oscar season, I really saw West Side Story taking pretty much every major category because it's such an achievement. But I really do think what we're going to see is a lot of love given kind of across the board. So I don't think there's one film that's going to run away with this. Um, I don't think there is anyone like last year where I was going to threaten to set the house on fire if they did not win. (laughs) I think that hurt has already been taken care of. So at this point, I'd say our home is safe. Thank Um, God. (laughs) But there are definitely some things I'm rooting for. Um, One, I just find it phenomenal that we have a, a film that is nominated for both 
or documentary feature, international film, and animated feature film in Flea. I think that makes this kind of a remarkable year that we see that going across. Um, I'm really excited by the Best Picture nominees. Not only do I feel like they cover a wide range of stories and experiences and creators and artists in them, but there are a lot of these films that I just truly love. The thing I'm going to say, because it, and maybe it's recency bias because we finally just saw it, but if you have not watched Coda, please watch Coda. Watch it with your family. Watch it with your friends. Make your coworkers watch it. I think it is not only a significantly important film, but it is a film that feels like a big old hug and not like the Irish hug of Belfast, but like a really nice <laughs> hug. Um, it's everything like I think a film should be. I'm very excited by the um, the acting categories, particularly the actress categories. I don't feel like these are locked up, but I definitely have favorites. Um, just give it to Ariana DeBose if you don't. Um, I'm going to be very upset because it's just an achievement of what she does. But I think it's a really wonderful year in when you can have categories that you can go... Or never um, time. Uh, <laughs> of... Uh, no, I have 10 seconds where you could give it to anyone. And I think the best example of this is the directing category. Everyone deserves it. And I think that's going to make it a really interesting Oscars year. So make sure you tune in on Sunday, March 27th. Done. Ha! Two minutes. <laughs> I guess I should have had the clock on that. <laughs> I had the clock in front of me. Well done. Well done. Woo! Uh, also, tune into our probably three-hour-long version of that two-minute. <laughs> yeah, thank you for not saying you had 13 seconds left. I appreciate uh, that. Uh, <laughs> um, but is 13 seconds important to have left? <laughs> Too much time is what it means to me. Um, so those of you that love hearing Lauren talk about her passion for the Oscars, keep a lookout on our social media, because not only are we going to be doing an Oscars episode this year for, for it on the podcast, uh, she's going to be popping up a few different places around Lehigh Valley here uh, to talk all things Oscar. So that will be a lot of fun to see. So I'm excited to listen to her talk about it. I'm excited to talk with her about it. So keep that, uh, you know, in mind over the next couple of weeks as well. I'm never tired of talking about the Oscars. <laughs> in fact, I find my lowest moment of the year the day after the Oscars, <laughs> and I don't get to talk about it anymore. <laughs> but, you know, and that's, you know, in the nominations phase, I feel like there's always this natural conversation that happens as soon as the nominations come out. And it's not who wins, it's who didn't get recognized. So do you have any major snubs from this year that you can kind of point to that you think should have been in yeah, this? Yeah, I don't think there's a ton this year. I mean, there's so many great performances. Um, I think we both agree that the directing um, category needs to be 10. And unfortunately, yes. by five, you left a lot out. The biggest one to me is uh, Den Denise Villeneuve. Denise Villeneuve. I, thank you. I knew I was going to pronounce it incorrect with Dune. I mean, he just did something spectacular with that film. Um, so I think that was hugely overlooked even in a loaded category um i do think that there's something to be said about the fact that you know spider-man no way home gets left off because i do think that we need some more of these types of films that are highly recognizable to a general audience and i think that was one that felt like it may have had some steam and had some heart um the the biggest one for me though is the acting category i think uh, actress category, excuse me. I think two that were left off that I, I have a harder time, you know, not seeing get recognized, and that was Alana Heim for Licorice Pizza. Um, screaming from the rooftops that I think she should have been in there. And then I think the other one after that is one that we just saw, which you just talked about, was Amelia Jones for Ruby in Coda, who I would say even probably more. I mean, she just felt so natural in that film and had so much nuance and had so much going on in that movie that it really bothers me that she's not going to get the recognition she deserves for that film. But those would be, and then obviously I think Nicolas Cage should have been in the conversation, but I never thought he was actually going to get nominated. So 
for pig. Please be specific yeah. about which Nicholas Cage yes. performance <laughs> you're talking about from this Not year. Not Ghost to the Heartland yeah. or whatever it was called. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you on any of those picks. I'd say the additional one I'd add in is I think there was a really heavy thought that Rachel Ziegler was going to get nominated for West Side Story Fair. for actress in a Fair. leading role, and I still am kind of surprised by that. Um, and I also think, and I forget his name, uh, the gentleman who played Bernardo in um, West Side West Story, Side, yeah. I thought was going to get nominated as well. I, and maybe that's just kind of showing my hand at where I thought <laughs> West Side Story should have been um, recognized as well. But I think there is a glaring one that seemed like a thirst trap for the Oscars. Yes. And we assumed from trailer one that this was going to get nominated across the board. And that's House of Gucci. Yeah. I just... Ha- Totally left off the the nomination. How do you feel about this? Do you think, I think we it's were the wrong? right call? Okay, okay. I think it's the right call. The only one I think could argue is Lady Gaga. I, I think it's it is a soapy, fun film to watch, but I don't think it's a very good movie. Yeah. <laughs> Here, the thing I kept saying afterwards when anyone I talked to who asked me or I offered this without any solicitation about how I felt about House of Gucci was this: it's a movie with Goodfellas content trying to be the godfather. And I think the problem is, is there is a tone decision that needed to be made, I think, for people to talk about this movie. I think if he had, from an acting standpoint, it felt like those actors understood this is to feel like a movie that was made in the 80s. Yeah. But I think Ridley Scott wanted to do something different with it. And I think the problem is those things felt like they were in conflict. And I think that's why you don't see it nominated. I think people were still taught. I mean, Lady Gaga has been nominated for quite a few awards during the season for her performance. But I think that's why it doesn't end up in the Oscars conversation, because if you look at the other actresses in that category, um, it's kind of hard to argue for her performance, especially with, you know, kind of the snubs we were talking about of people who didn't make it. Yeah, and she was great. I mean, she's absolutely great great in it. The curious thing, though, here is directing, right? Where, you know, again, it's hard to find really Scott's place in this film, or with this film. Uh, I hear great things about The Last Duel. We haven't watched it. So he's had an interesting year of kind of a lot of praise, yet a lot of detractors. So it's an interesting year for Ridley Scott. But it's exciting to see that he's still making really, you know, films that are are generating a lot of discussion. Well, what I've always really respected about Ridley Scott, and I am not inventing the wheel by saying this, is like he's kind of hard to pin down as terms of style and in terms mm. of thematic and subject matter. Like I had heard someone recently say it's like he just wakes up one day and is like, man, I want to do a biopic. Like, yeah. And that's like, and then he, he just directs the story that he wants to. I think there's a lot of power in that. And I think with House of Gucci, like, I don't do that. I mean, it's beautifully shot. Like, I mean, Adam Driver's never looked so great in a suit. And I don't know if that's a credit to Ridley Scott or to Adam Driver's physique. But, like, either way, like, well done. And, like, I think, you know, him as a director, I think it's interesting to think about. You're talking about one of, like, preeminent American filmmakers put out two films this year. And the Academy went, nah. Like, that. it's surprising. And, you know, especially, you know, Important given the film we're going to be talking about today, which is his 1979 masterpiece, Alien. So we open on some of the greatest lettering that has ever been done at the beginning of a film. (laughs) Um, You know, an eerie score that starts us off. Um, These amazingly beautiful, yet wide, yet claustrophobic shots inside of the Nostromo. We are slowly introduced to a crew that's being woken up from a stasis sleep as they travel back to Earth. Uh, we don't know what the call is that has woken them up yet, but we start to get to see them, you know, surprised, not dismayed. Um, so this seems like maybe it's normal form. Um, 
And then we start to kind of meet these characters slowly and get to the heart of this, which is there is a distress call coming from a nearby planet. We find out that it's within their protocols that they must go investigate. We don't know a lot about what the Nostromo does, but we get the sense that this is somehow, you know, kind of like a, a mineral seeking ship you know, collects things, you know, there's a lot of like kind of left ambiguous, but we know that kind of what the task at hand is. And then it just all goes to hell from there, from the moment they answer that call until, you know, the startling conclusions. So I am desperately excited to talk about this film. Um, It is no, there was no way of denying how important this film is to cinematic history. It's also no denying like how much this film borrowed from things that came before it. The writer of this film, Dan O'Bannon said he didn't steal from anybody. He stole from everybody. Um, He wanted there to be a sense of like this kind of being the next link in a very long chain of uh, the history of sci-fi films in Hollywood. And you can't watch anything today that brands itself science fiction without seeing the ties to this film. It's remarkable. It's stunning. I think still visually it shocks and I find it striking what they were able to do with the creation of this set. I can't think of a film more influential to start this season with. So Ryan Tossey, how could you have never seen Alien? Lover of sci-fi and horror, yes. never saw Alien. Oh, the sci-fi horror Yeah, we'll get will there. Come. We'll get there. Um, you know, I... Defend I, yourself. <laughs> I, I have a defense without defending myself. Um, so this film, you know, I, when did you see it? Can I ask you that? Oh, like, God. just what, like, around what age? Do you know approximately? Five years old. Okay. Um, so that, you know, yeah, that would have been around the time I'm watching these types of movies and classics as well. I grew up with friends, and we would watch these types of movies, and we attached to... I'm going to stop you right there. Yeah. Don't be calling anything with Alien these types of movies. Alien isn't a class all its own. You come correct to this episode. (laughs) Well, but here's the thing, and I think I am proper in saying this, that this movie gets linked a lot to another sci-fi horror film, um, and that is Predator. And I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> and I that was that was my side. Like that's what I grew up with. Um, you know, while I remember watching it with my dad, I remember watching it with my friends, like watching that movie so many times watching Predator. It's like I just said I grew up eating lobster and you said I grew up eating crab with a K. Like what? <laughs> like it, these things are not alike. All right, I know for sure the audience is not going to agree with you on that. I'm not sitting there saying that you can't argue that Alien <laughs> is or is not a better Blink film. Blink twice audience if you agree with me. <laughs> but no, Predator is such a genius type film. I mean, yes, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger at his most Arnold Schwarzenegger 80s, you know, action star. But the genius of that movie is how they build the two different, um, you know, it's essentially two different films, which is such a a really unique, cool way to do it. Um, And there's no way that you can't argue that these two films are so linked as we end up just combining them at some point. That's because someone later on wanted to (laughs) smash action figures together, (laughs) and now these films are inextricably tied. So, yeah, I have no, you know, I always have to now preference this because you and I um, fortunately have 
uh, older siblings, yes. and our older siblings like to call us out. I think your brother one time said that we built a podcast on a, on a throne of lies. He's not wrong, <laughs> except that he is, because I've never seen The Goonies until I was an adult, but he really believes that so, I had seen it earlier. I have no recollection of ever seeing, okay. like, I knew Alien, obviously. There's no way you don't. You can't be, you know. So I knew all about it, but I had, other than, <laughs> you're going to love this. Oh, I have, uh, it's a troubling question I was going to ask you, and I think you're about to answer Go it. Go ahead, what's your question? Is your first experience with Alien the scene in Spaceballs? Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, that definitely. Uh, <laughs> I was actually going to say my first... Oh, God, you saw Aliens before you saw Alien. No, I've never seen Aliens. There's so much wrong here. <laughs> I'm just, I, I've never been this upset going into an the episode. The first aliens, Alien film I ever saw was Alien vs. Predator. <laughs> All right, so bye, everyone. And then Lauren's Alien vs. Pre- Predator Requiem. <laughs> so I have a question. I might let you know, those two movies, not great. <laughs> you know why? He introduced a Predator. <laughs> so I have a question, though, because you're a huge, huge, huge Fincher fan. Did you see Alien 3 before I you didn't. saw Alien? Okay. No, uh, because pretty much David Fincher told me not to. <laughs> not me personally, but just pretty much any fan. Like, do not see this movie. <laughs> Okay, that actually makes me feel a little bit better because I would have been even angrier if you had told me you had seen Alien 3 before you ever watched <laughs> Alien. So, okay. I, I mean, all right. Now, obviously, my passion for this, I am I am putting it out there with, like, reckless abandon. I saw this I saw this as a young person. I, was, I saw it when I was, like, I want to say five. Um, er, my recollection of seeing this is when we lived in Texas. Um, like, all good older siblings, you know, my brother was showing me movies I probably shouldn't have been watching. Um And I was hooked. And really, it comes down to it was Ripley. Ripley rules. Like, and it's one of those movies that, you know, we can talk about, like, kind of the context of, like, you know, uh, female characters and science fiction films and kind of the code shifting that happens because of Alien going from, you know, secretary of the scientist in a sci-fi film, which is what we see very prevalent during the 50s B-budget sci-fi films and even into the 60s to something like, you know, Ripley, who is the person of agency within this film. And... It's one of those things, the first time you told me, I think I did a spit take when you said you hadn't seen Alien, because it's so insanely influential. But before we go any further and start talking about this film, I just, I have to, you love it, right? Like, you love it, just comfort me, don't save it till the end, I need to know now. (laughs) Um, I do, I do. I really, really like the movie. (laughs) What, what is what what is this tone? I, I don't love how this is starting. There's, it's a really good move. It's a really good wow. sci-fi movie. Wow! Wow! I'm not. I, I'm not saying anything negative towards it. It deserves the praise that it gets. But <laughs> I, I I think I'm actually still gonna sit and watch Predator if you have if you give me the choice between the two. There's something not right um, with you. I also <laughs> There's a lot of interest. I mean, I I you said something that I think we're gonna have to dive a little bit into here at some point, whether we do it at the top of the show or or somewhere in the middle, but you say about how this film is influential. And I don't disagree with you. But the problem I think I slightly have with with going over the top on the praise of it is but this movie is so influenced by others. So it's like, um, it, it's hard not to see the influence that he took and put into this movie. And I, I think that's where sometimes I'm like, yeah, it deserves the praise that it gets. And, you know, does the copy of another thing 
deserve as much praise. I don't know if I, I that's where I think I'm I'm balancing my feelings on it, seeing it as, you know, an adult. But I don't think you can essentially neglect the fact that, like, I, I think in all of cinema and all of art, there's some, like, mode of imitation. Or you can give it as some mode of progression of, like, this was the kind of next phase. So, obviously, if you didn't know this about the film, so part of why Alien gets put into production is because of Star Wars. Um, there was a real cashing in that was coming from, you know, sci-fi films or wanting to kind of tap that pulse of that sci-fi audience. Um, the writer of this film, Dan O'Bannon, very famously went, so he went to USC, um, you know, just that tiny little film program. Um, he was, when he was a student at USC, who was working on John Carpenter's Dark Star. Dark Star. Which I had a feel you knew <laughs> going into this. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, so you have kind of, you have, so he's obviously, he's got his like, you know, 100% his feet kind of like firmly in that. And when he made the comment that I made earlier where he was quoted as saying he didn't steal from any, anybody, he stole from everybody, is I think what you have with this film is, is like he kind of tapped into something he knew that could work really well, which is what if you take essentially like a haunted house film and set it in space because the stakes are so different like you know when you're watching something that's like a haunted house film you, you there is that element where you just want to yell at the characters well just leave well this is not as easy as that um and then you layer into here some really important things that i think this film has over even i would say its predecessors and even the people that came after it, which was like such intentionality with production design with thematics that were added into this. I think at its root, this is something that very much functions as a haunted house story, except for the fact it has all of these other layers that make it something so much more elevated than its predecessors and the things that it influences after this. So in that way, and you know, and Ridley Scott very famously said like what he wanted to make was Texas Chainsaw Massacre in space. Right. His three biggest influences are Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Sorry, Texas Chainsaw Massacre of science fiction, I yeah. think is what he said. You're right. And I and I wanted to say that, so I'm glad you already knew that, which was his three influences to this movie are Texas Chainsaw Massacre, two thousand and one a space odyssey, and Star Wars. Yeah. And the, the influences are clear. And this is, where, this is where when you ask me that question, I have a hard time answering. I think it's a great movie. I am not taking anything away from it. It is really, really good. It's really engaging. But the problem is when you start drilling down on it, and then you go, well, it's essentially Jaws in space. Um, you know, it's all of these other movies that I'm like... You're you're taking all of these pieces to create this this really great movie, but I'm like, but I almost I for me personally, and I'm not taking anything away from it, it deserves the credit it gets. It's just I see all of these influences and I, I wanna watch all of those films more. Yeah, I, I just I heartily disagree. I don't I don't I think this thing has its influences, but I think it's so much more than its influences. And I think like for if for nothing else, and you know, we can kind of maybe talk about this, you, the introduction of the character Ripley, and then certainly what's being done here, you know, with kind of like the breakdown of the boundaries and rules of how women are treated in science fiction and in horror, like both as separate, although I would say that this is a combination of the genres, like you have here something really interesting in the sense. So Julia Kristeva in The Power of Horror wrote about like the notion of like the abject, which is like when in horror, we have like this breakdown of rules. And like certainly that happens in here. We have a breakdown of like gender lines. We also have in terms like kind of the like, abject terror of like motherhood that like yeah. it is pervasive in this film. Um, 
you know, so when you take those thematics, like, I think that's what makes it something different. I don't think there has been a horror or sci-fi film that has tried so eloquently to deal with those ideas of, like, impregnation and species um, and female bodies or male bodies being violated. I don't think a film has done this as well since in this realm. I'm not saying in, not in other genre, but I would say that this kind of marks itself differently for that. And then additionally, you have, you know, the, the creature design here is next level. Yeah. H.R. Geiger's work and is I, yeah, intensely it, important. And I don't want to give one blanket statement and, and not give it its due. I agree with you. There's so much here that's I am literally saying it's a great film. So, like, there's the production design is all interesting. I think there are some interesting aspects of the Ripley character and how we view the Ripley character. Um, I think especially how we we get to her, what was supposed to actually happen to that character, I think are some interesting things because, and I'm going to say this, and, and listen, I've not seen the other films, I'm going to fully admit that, um, with Ripley, uh, but I know this character, obviously, it's, it's such a iconic pop culture character, she kind of has this badass final girl appeal. And it sounds like that's really warranted to the history of Ripley's character, but I don't know 100% if it's fully um, seen in this film. But I think, like, that's what's important. So I, let's keep the sequels aside, because we're going to hold that for the end, because I agree, there's a trajectory of that character that mm -hmm. starts to lean more something that feels like an action hero. Yeah, agree. But okay. I think that's actually what makes the, the first film for Ripley so immensely important because the thing is is like you know how we deem badass I think often gets like really supplanted to like action heroes because they're Fair. doing those like big like you know feats of daring do like yeah. that's what we get to see where I think she's so important in this film and not only and I'll say like look growing up like this was a film role model for me like I wanted to be like Ripley Ripley's smart she's of agency she knows from the beginning what they did was wrong she knew immediately they needed to quarantine them and like everything that happens is essentially punishment for them not following her like and I'm not saying that the characters like deserve to be killed but like she knew what they were doing is wrong and I think there's this really interesting thing that happens of like you know, they're answering a distress call, but becomes more of like an exploratory mission. And you get the sense that they're mining this planet for what they need. And I think Ripley knows that's inherently wrong and inherently like kind of against their protocol. Like you have examined for a distress signal. None of the things you're exploring mount up to understanding what that distress was. And I think it's the fact that she starts to figure out ways to protect herself. The fact that she figures out the way to kill the creature at the end you know, the fact that she is the lone survivor of the Nostromo, I think, is what makes her, to me, that's what makes her badass. Because she is the person who uses her intellect and the strength of her body to figure out a way out of this. Whereas every other character in the film, you know, essentially falls prey either to they don't make smart choices or they don't protect their body or they get like, you know, unfortunately fall prey to like being like impregnated by the alien, you know. And I think that's what makes her character so and I'll be very honest, and we will probably talk about this even more later. This is my favorite story for Ripley, is this first one. I like aliens a lot. Like, I won't pretend like I don't. But there's something about this, the fact of, like, how she perseveres that I find so 
compelling and something that, you know, I feel like becomes the mold for if you want a character who's a woman of agency who figures her way out of this, this is the character to model it after because of what she does. And that's a credit to how she is written, to how she is filmed. She's not sexualized. She is not like made like prey to kind of the male gaze. In fact, she is the best defense against like some of those tropes we see in film. Um, I will get to the hold up later. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm almost with you on that. Um, I, I think there's a scene that, that undercuts that slightly. Um, but I, I think the, the interesting thing is the script was written genderless. Um, and they're very yes. on, you know, so it was intentionally, it was never sought to be a female character. Um, it was meant to just, we're going to write these characters without ever giving them so that everybody kind of came across, you know, the same a little bit. Um, I think obviously once the, the, the actors get casted, I think that starts to, that sounds fine on a written page, but I think once the actors, there starts to be more that's built on it. So I do agree with you. I, I think there's a lot that's um, with Ripley that that's really intriguing that we obviously weren't seeing prior to this by, by a character like that. Well, and I also think that, like, you know, when you, like, writer Dan O'Bannon has talked, like, so frequently about the fact that, like, he did want some redrawing of gender lines with, like, how this, and he talked about this as, like, once the characters get cast, it becomes more about, like, the payback for how monsters typically attack sexually vulnerable women in film. Like, he, he's, he has said that, like, that this was meant to be intentional. So it's interesting to think about it as something that was, something that I think we analyzed so much for the value of how gender is displayed in this film. The fact that it was written genderless is really interesting. So it is kind of at what point did they realize like we have another component of this story to tell? And at what point was that layered on, you know, in kind of the development process of this? Um, you know, even if you look at the alien itself, um, you know, certainly there's been plenty written. We're not rewriting or, you know, like, reinventing anything here to talk about like there's so much about like the shape of the alien and how the alien attacks that felt very coded towards this idea of um i think how it's been labeled as like the notion of like monstrous motherhood um and kind of like like your body being invaded but that being perpetrated upon males that are meant to birth something you know yeah in the well film. i know you know kane's character yeah. it wasn't I don't believe it was written for Kane to actually have the face hugger. That that was intentionally changed because of essentially what they're trying to get at with the face hugger and, and what occurs, that they needed that to be a male character once it was on screen. Uh, because they didn't want to have, because essentially what they're trying to, you know, display here they didn't want to do to a female character yes and like because they felt like what we see in terms of gender politics and the films that came before it were so regressive so they were trying to go for something of like and they wanted audience members to feel comfortable uncomfortable with this like they wanted they essentially were targeting this towards for males to feel uncomfortable with these scenarios and then to like think about it reflectively in terms of like not only science fiction films that have come before it, but horror films as well. But in talking about the film itself, I think what's established in the beginning so importantly is the notion of unease. You have like just these long shots of hallway. You have this score that feels like all these like discordant noises. And I feel like the immediate tension of the film is just like, I'm not seeing any signs of life and that freaks me out. And that they hold in that space 
for a very long time. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's really fantastic because I think it establishes the spaceship. So for us as an audience, when everything kind of goes to hell, we understand how the spaceship works, the space that we're they're moving within. And I think that, and it also, I think it, it feels vast. It feels huge. But again, as the action starts to become, everything starts to close in on itself. It starts to become more claustrophobic. So I think that opening shots, like you said, I think it's a really brilliant idea to, to stay with it for so long and slowly get to the them waking up. Well, yeah, because when you get to that, like, very sterile space of, like, their sleep chambers, like, mm-hmm. you know, seeing kind of, like, the bright lights of it and, you know, and how much, I mean, there's so much here put in for the production value of this film. And I think, like, that establishing of, like, no one's present, because as you said, like, it does start to close in, but it also, like, gives you the sense of, like, this is all the places that the monster could hide. And you almost get the sense of, like, yeah. these are the hallways they're going to be running down when they're being attacked. And I think, like, spending so much time there, it not only establishes where we are, but it also gives you a hint of, like, this is what's about to come. And I think like, that's what's so great about the opening of this. Cause everything just kind of happens slowly. Like it's, it's everybody's waking up, you yeah. know, there's, you're establishing like who these characters are. Do you have a favorite, uh, member of the Nostromo <laughs> uh, crew? Yes. Mine will be Brett. Uh, okay. played by Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> all right. What is it about Brett? I'm not surprised. Uh, just, it, you know, I, you know, just the, like him and, um, Parker, Parker. I just <laughs> love together. I mean, you know, there's a lot of economic class that's obviously being put into this yes. film. Um, and, you know, because these are essentially, what, space truckers, right? Like, that's essentially how we're supposed to to view them. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of interesting stuff of, you know, you know, obviously the the bonuses and things like that. So I love just the, the friendship between Brett and Parker. So between the two of them, I could probably go one or one. I just love Harry Dean Stanton, how he plays it, the Hawaiian shirts and the hat, you know. And I just like these two characters because... You know, immediately, none of these characters are vastly different, probably, in economic class, but there is enough of a divide. Mm -hmm. And Brett's just kind of going for the ride. Like, he listens to Parker, he knows Parker's right, but I don't think he really has the same passion or care, (laughs) you know? Uh, So it's just, I like the ease of of Brett's character, but then, like, when they're down, you know, in the, you know, fixing everything, it's like... These guys are the lifeblood of this ship. Yes. Like, the ship's not moving, literally, without them. So, you know, and how important they are. And I think that also then really plays into the, you know, obviously the economic divides that, you know, as a country that obviously Ridley Scott's more trying to, and um, and O'Bannon are trying to put into this film. Yeah, I know and I agree, too. There is, like, something made there about, like, there's an economic commentary here because you do, because when they're talking about the bonuses and, like, and I think the thing with Brett and Parker is, is, like, I think there, I've read things about this that almost like talk about it like that it's kind of the comedic relief of the film. And mm. it's like, and I, and I think that's an overly simplistic way to approach Agreed. these completely, characters. Completely. Because I think anything you find funny about it is because they're commentating on the fact of like, well, like we're the only ones who can keep this whole thing going, yeah. but fine, you know, we're going to get paid the least. Like there is like that sense of it. Um, I, and I don't disagree with you. I wouldn't say Brett or Parker. I love, I love Dallas. I think Dallas functions really well as a real dick of a captain. Yeah. Like, there's no other way to say <laughs> yeah. it. Tom Skerritt does a great job at it, so if I'm not picking Ripley... I have a question for you. Yes. It has nothing to do with the movie. Yeah. Tom Skerritt. Yeah. Is Tom Skerritt, quote, unquote, Tom Skerritt, or is Tom Skerritt that guy? Like, 
over his career. He's that guy. He, yeah, he's right? that guy. He he's, always felt he was just on the outside. Yeah, because he was like in enough and he was the stern but lovable dad in enough things, which he very much says yeah. is the captain here. Um, <laughs> Not I, in Poison Ivy. I don't think he was the lovable dad. <laughs> no. Ivy. But yeah, no, I think he's more that guy than like identifiable. Like I, I think, think he, today, yeah, he's yeah, definitely. definitely. I think probably back in the day he was Tom Skerritt. Yeah. But then never moved past. I have to ask. Is Lambert the most useless oh, member God. of the Nostromo crew? <laughs> I hate Lambert. I hate her so much. Oh, my God. Yeah, Lambert is the Franklin of Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> to this film. Like, just from start to finish, you're just like, this character needs to, to be off screen. And at some point, and nothing against Veronica Cartwright, I'm sure she's playing this character as it was, as it was written, written yeah. or they wanted it. And I think she even got nominated for something, not an Oscar, but another one of the big awards at some point. And I'm like, no, this character is so, I'm just like, I can't. I think the <laughs> And the fact that she lasts so long. <laughs> yes. And I think the problem is, is like, there's almost like, I don't know what her deal is. Are you a, are you like a company man? Like kind of right. just like, you know, so like indoctrinated to the mission of getting these like goods and resources back to earth. Are you a dissenter? Like she doesn't pick a lane and that's what I find frustrating. I don't understand her utility on the ship. And that's kind of the hardship, I think, with that character. Maybe it's because they don't give her enough, but I think what they do give her, she's very annoying with. I'm totally with you. I'm glad you said it. because yeah. How do you feel about the scene where they go down to the planet? Do you like that sequence? I do. Um, I mean, if nothing else, it gives us the space jockey, um, which is one of a really iconic piece of, of film. Yeah. I wrote down, and I because I was like, I am never not going to be impressed with this whole landing sequence and the exploration of this planet. Yeah. I'm never not going to yeah. be impressed and by it's, that. Listen, this film... It's gorgeous. We talk a lot about date, how films feel dated. And this is one of those films that it feels dated in some sense. No. Um, visually, but at the same token, it really holds up. Like, I don't... I'm probably sounding more harsh. I just feel like the characters and visually how they look, it feels like it's a film that's pulled from the 70s. But that being said, it doesn't mean that it doesn't hold up beautifully and as a story, as, you know, the art direction, the the, the sets, um, you know, so every, you, all of that. You think more they're styled in a way that unfortunately, although it's supposed to be futuristic, look like people from the 70s. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I actually do completely agree with that because there is that element of like, this is how you would have told the story in the set. Because I think the thing is, is like one of the things I find very impressive about the ship as a set, like that was built in one piece. Like, they mm. built, I mean, they fought for their sets. I mean, just, like, as, as we can talk about, like, H.R. Geiger's design for the creature itself, um, you know, they fought for kind of everything to make sure that all of these pieces could be there because, like, and that's the thing. If you're talking about something that gets essentially, like, greenlit because of Star Wars success, well, I mean, that's what Lucas was doing. They were building all the sets and, you know, out at Elstree Studios, and they did the same thing for this. And I think that's the thing when I that endures because when I watch the film, because most, if not all of this was done practically, it holds up because it looks real. Um, if nothing else, the control room for the captain with all the lights, I'm like, that's a vibe. I yeah. want that room. <laughs> right. I want that room. <laughs> I want to turn one room in this house no, into that I, room. I agree completely with you. And I think the down on space, you know, really speaks to how this isn't, this was a low budget movie. Uh, yeah. Um, they only got 4.2 million and then uh, Scott really fought for the space jockey. A good portion of it went to the space jockey. And I guess his argument was, essentially, this piece is going to make this film look 
more expensive than it yes. is. So yeah, we're gonna put a lot of money into this, but it's going to help the the bigger picture of it. They ended up doubling it, so it got eight point four million to kind of give people kind of an example of how low that is. Uh, Infinity War and Endgame both had about three hundred million dollar budgets. <laughs> to compare to that, eight point four today would be about thirty two million. So I mean vast difference to see yes. what so that also speaks to the brilliance of what Ridley Scott and this entire team was able to put together yeah it really is because like you think about and how much of it feels practical like I feel like if they touch those buttons something is going to happen yeah. it feels like very rooted and you know and as we've been hinting at like talking about the creature design like so what H.R. Geiger ends up designing for not only the xenomorph itself but the face hugger you know they did they used like so because I believe with the face hugger didn't they use it was like oysters and like chicken livers yeah, it was a, yeah, there was It's like uh, several different food products that are used to make the inside of the face hugger yeah. look as it does. So the face hugger egg, uh, the face hugger was was sheep intestines. That's okay. Yeah, and yeah. then the egg was uh, cow guts. Yeah, and you know, I even think about that great you have that great scene with like Kane when he's on the you know, before he gets face hugged. Um, you know, even just like how those eggs look. So he actually there was an element there with like lasers that were used. Why are you smiling and nodding? No, 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 go. Uh, do you uh, know about the lasers? So there's something with it, right? Like, it was taken from a musical performance? It was uh, Roger Daltrey gave them the lasers. They were uh, doing the Who. Or, I'm sorry, not that. They were in the studio next. Exper- the Who was experimenting with lasers. And the studio next to them was talking to Ridley Scott, and they decided to let them use... The, their lasers for that scene. Well, because, and and the brilliant choice of that is it makes that, like, it, it really does add a weight to I when did. you see those eggs. I knew it was something, like, with musicians is how they got yeah. it. I didn't realize it was the who, like, but the idea of just, like, how it adds this sense of, like, you kind of can't blame them for exploring, but you also realize this is why your ha- your head gets bitten because you decided to do this. <laughs> like, that obviously should read as danger, but it's also kind of alluring. Yeah, there are some... Interesting decisions through this movie that I do everyone, find a little confusing. Everyone in this movie is an entire dumbass <laughs> except for Ridley. I, Ridley. Yes, I am a hundred percent with you on that. Um, also, I do have to say I've got to take one jab at it, and I know you don't like when I'm doing that. Um, oh yeah, the audience can tell. But is <laughs> but is is Kane's fall the most awkward fall of all Intensely time? Intensely odd. I'm like. Did, did either the stunt or if it was um, John Hurd um, doing, or John Hurt, excuse me, doing it? Like, <laughs> did they just not know how to fall? Like, <laughs> it is very awkward. There's, and, and, and here's the thing I've always thought that the, the scene actually on the planet, although from a production design standpoint, is beautiful. And I think it sets like a really important tension because I think we all expect that the alien itself is going to appear in its full form when they're on the planet. I think that would be the genre expectation and that yeah. somebody weasels its way in. Not that it would be like impregnating one of the like the crew members. But I do agree with you. I always feel like that scene of any of the sequences feels a, like a hair too long. But I think and that's... It's weird though. It also doesn't feel long enough because it's like they cut from yes. that to all of a sudden they're back at the ship. Yes. There is... <laughs> there's this weird thing that happens and, and I've... It, it's interesting. The director's cut is actually shorter, yeah. so it's not like it's going to add content. And Ridley Scott has said, no, it's not the better cut. Yeah, and, and so it makes me go, well, I've never been invested in watching that version of it because it's shorter, and he he has said it's not better, so yeah, why watch it? Yeah, my understanding is it's a faster pacing. Um, so, and maybe that would account for some of that stuff on the planet, but, like, I, I, but I do think you need it. Like, you need... That, that tension building, I think, is important. And then, like, how it gets back on the ship. Like, there is an element of, like, you kind of can't blame the crew for trying to advocate as to why 
he should get put back on board. But Ripley's so right about, like, we don't know what happened. We don't know what this is. The protocol alone would suggest that we should not be bringing him back on board. And we, as an audience, know one about the impending doom, but also because we've seen what this structure looks like from the beginning. This again was establishing a shot at the beginning is so important. We know what the we know that this place is gonna feel claustrophobic really quick if there's something malicious running about. Yeah. And that happens very quickly. Yeah, and I think this is a really cool thing that they do in this movie. Um because again, for me seeing it as an adult and knowing about it and everything, like I go in and I know Ridley Scott is going to be our quote unquote hero at the end. Right. Did um, you just say Ridley Scott? Did I say, I'm did sorry. You mean Ripley? <laughs> Ripley. It's uh, hard not to do when you're talking about this film. <laughs> sorry. Uh, maybe, maybe we can argue that Ridley uh, Scott as a director in this movie is, is a hero. The hero. Uh, but no, it's Ripley. And if I, I may have said Ridley earlier too. I apologize. But Ripley, I know is going to be the hero. So I'm trying to also watch this from a, First time seeing it, not knowing anything about it. But what I love about it is Ripley, this movie takes a long time to really establish who our main focus is, who our yes. main, you know, protagonist is going to be. Ripley doesn't, she's got not much to do for the first 30 minutes of this movie or, or longer until you're talking about that. That's the first major moment for her. And I mean, it's a huge moment. It's going to show that she's the smartest one on the ship. Yep. It's going to show that she's all about survival. Um, so she is trying to think of the bigger picture as opposed to the smaller picture. Like, she's following the rules. Like, she is... It really builds her up. And I think it's a really cool way that we we don't have much to sit in with this character. And also thinking about the fact the time, Sigourney Weaver's not a big actress. No. So it's not like you're looking at, oh, well, uh, we know she's going to build up. Like, So I think that's... Uh, to really, Dallas feels like he should be but never does. I, I, I love that. I really love that about this movie. Well, and I'll actually say, like, to counter that, because I understand why you're saying that towards Dallas, because I think there's a, an expecta a genre expectation of, like, well, the captain is the focus. I actually think that Kane is positioned as the and focus. And the mustache. And the mustache. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the mustache just said... The mustache was great. <laughs> Here's your hero. Yeah. <laughs> That's just that's, that's, that's a code right there for Phil. <laughs> yeah. But, like, I think actually in a lot of ways Kane is kind of positioned, because there's something... There's something, like, wise and kind of charming about him, and credit to John Hurt, but, like, there's something about him that seems like he is, and then when he gets attacked, it's this weird, wait, what, what, what's happening here? He was, like, the astronauts who sent to explore him. How is he, like, now the red shirt to bar yeah. uh, parlance from Star Trek? we sit with him the longest yes. at the opening. Yes. When he wakes up, which yes. we don't realize is going to be... No, it's because he's going to be our first sacrifice. Yes, yeah, like he will and die. He is for... literally going to birth our villain. <laughs> and so, all right, can we we got to talk about that scene? We got so I mean, you know, the facehugger drips acid, which <laughs> dope defense mechanism, <laughs> which I think is is a really smart writing decision, right? Of why they don't try and get it off of them. Well, they can't do anything. <laughs> they, throughout yeah. the, like, they're afraid to shoot the alien. Yeah. They're afraid to do anything really with the alien because they understand it's going to take out the ship. Yeah. I think that's a really smart decision. Well, and I love the sequence of them following the acid down oh, the deck. Oh, yes. That's very cool. Because then you're just like, it takes you back to like, you know, sophomore year chemistry and you're like, yeah, I know that <laughs> stuff is dangerous and there's no way to neutralize it in space. Yeah, I think it's just a brilliant piece of writing to to create for this this 
you know, character. And then, or, you know, I guess, yeah, I guess character. And then when you finally get the release, I love the sense that they're just like, well, let's have some breakfast, guys. Let's get some cereal on the table. Let's sit down. Like, because, like, now the face hugger is off of him. And I'm like, we all just are really returning to normality way quick. Like, uh, he's just hungry. That thing had acid as a defense mechanism, and none of y'all worried that there might be something suspect. Okay, I mean, I guess I shouldn't expect much. You had no idea one of your crew members was a robot the entire time, a milky robot at that. But, like, the fact that, and I think that's what's so great about the chestburster sequence is... Not only is it vastly disgusting, I mean, this is body horror at its finest, but it's the fact that they really do turn to, oh, that was a weird episode, guys. Like, and there's a sense of like finality to it, like that they're all okay with what happened. They're just going to kind of keep marching forward as though this was it. And that none of them seem to indicate like, maybe we should keep him in a room by himself for a little while. So two questions actually with that to you. Um, and... The first is, I will say, the only thing I'll give them slight defense there is your your doctor is Ash, who we yes. know is falsifying everything and wants to see it. So do they have to give a little trust over that he's saying, no, 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 he's fine. So I think there's a little Fair. bit to that. Um I also, my other curiosity to you is there's a line that I caught this time, because I've seen this now two times. We saw it once about a year ago, and then we watched it for this podcast. And I caught, and I believe when they find the beacon, somebody, I may, might be Lambert, ask, is it human? Um, so am I to understand that they're, they're aware that there's alien life out in the universe? Or am I misreading that line? So canonically, yeah. I might be completely mistaken on this, but I think you are supposed to know that there is other life. Okay. Because the fact that they say, is it human, would suggest that there's another transmission. Like, they've maybe at some point in the time of the Nostromo have intercepted, like, other other yeah. forms of life at some other point or that there's some protocol written for it um, because the exploration doesn't fit feel like it's coded with we might be the first to find alien life. I might someone might be able to fact check me on this um, yeah. and tell me otherwise, but I believe that's the intention of it. So Because they seem to react more to the viciousness of the alien as opposed to it's an alien. It's an alien, yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I think, you know, the way in which technology has clearly evolved, because again, Ian Holm is the most like convincing robot. Although I realized like for then seeing that at five years old, the rest of my life, I couldn't trust Ian Holm in anything, <laughs> which kind of tracks because he's like definitely Jack the Ripper and from hell. <laughs> I was going to say that's, I can't. And he's definitely <laughs> bad, bad <laughs> Hobbit. Like <laughs> When he was, um. Uh, um, in the hot or in the Hobbit and and Lord of the Rings, I could never get past him being Jack the Ripper and from Hell. Spoiler alert! Sorry. You're like that <laughs> Hobbit's murdered prostitutes <laughs> with their little prostitute Hobbit. Feet. I mean, how many have it? <laughs> well, this is going to be now admissible to court evidence. <laughs> That's great. I mean, how many Hobbits? Ah! <laughs> I thought you this meant got that. weird. This got weird. Okay, going back to the Stromo where there are chest bursters and Actually, a lot safer can, content. Can I can I just pivot one moment? Okay. I have to tell this because in my research it, it has nothing to do with alien for the most part. The episode is alien. <laughs> so do you so they end up pulling so we talk about HR Geiger did the yes. created the alien, created the the space jockey, a lot of visually the the alien aspects of this. So all of that actually was reworked. Um, they pulled it from um, 
Alejandro Jodorowsky's adaptation of Dune. So in the 70s, he was supposed to make a Dune film. And this is where it's not alien, but they pull all this artwork and everything from that, and that helped them along to get this these great looks. But have you ever heard about his Dune version? No. Oh, you have to hear about this version. So there is a documentary out there about the, the failed making of this, but it was, like, this was all signed on. It was, the score and music was supposed to be all done by Pink Floyd. Then your cast was uh, Uder Keel, David Cardine, Car- Carradine, Carradine um, Mick Jagger, and then Orson Welles was playing the Baron, <laughs> and you know who was playing the Emperor? <laughs> Salvador Dali. <laughs> There would have been so much whiskey and blow on that set. <laughs> so the best part is Salvador Dali said he would agree to it, but he was only taking the highest paid of any actor of all time. So he was going to be paid $100,000. And essentially, the film... Wait, he, at that point, $100,000 would have been the an most... Hour. Hour. $100, oh, an, an hour. $100,000 an hour. So Tardowski wanted him so badly, he wrote his character down to only an hour long. <laughs> <laughs> and then was going to Amazing. do um, like a robot like wax figure stand-in for him, which Dolly was fine and donated it to a museum. The Wait, film was this going exist somewhere. Oh uh, yes, we yes, have to go see yes. it. And then he was going to the film was supposed to be ten to fourteen hours, and this is why the film ends up not getting made because the financiers were like, "You can't make a ten to fourteen hour film." And he was like, "Well, it's either this or nothing." And they were like, "Yeah, nothing." And Zack <laughs> Snyder right now is like holding my beer. Right. <laughs> so okay. I'm sorry, but they end up taking all of that artwork that they were using that for makes that, sense. and then and Archer Garger and then that whole crew ends up moving over to. And like, Alien. Thank goodness they did because like they're so like first off, I mean like we talk about this creature design of the xenomorph. It's so threatening. I think the the double mouth, the the various like you know phallic and then womb like things that like happen in this film is like the overtones here are like I mean it's it's beat you over the head, but in a really great way. I think the fact that you have like this this monster is so intensely menacing. Like it to the point there used to be a ride in Disney World called the Great Movie yes. Ride. And there was a sequence where the xenomorph, like, comes through the ceiling. You have this really bad wax figure of Sigourney Weaver. And then, like, the, um, and then. Not like a Salvador Dali. No. No, her cheeks are just too rosy on the wax figure. There was always my issue with it. And then, like, it comes out. And I used to, like, close my eyes every time. I mean, this is, like, one of my all-time favorite movies because it's just so menacing. And, like, and how they accomplished this was with, like, a, it was, like, was he a six foot ten grad student? Yes. Um, by the name of Balaji Badijo. And he, if you have never watched watched video of just him practicing the movements with just the head on it is both mesmerizing and terrifying like it will haunt your dreams because he really what you don't realize because there's so many like there's obviously so many layers added onto the costumery here and and the creature effect is that his movements are so important to I think what makes this character so menacing like yes a lot of people kind of point to the double mouth but it's the way the creature moves I think it's like this very subtle thing that he does with it that makes it so impactful um and obviously that's you know credit to H.R. Geiger's designs like because I think this film from a directing standpoint is brilliant I think the acting is immense I think the pacing and everything but you have to like really kind of give it up to there is there are effects that occur in this film that were landmark and groundbreaking and are what make this movie terrifying. Yeah, yeah, and that the alien head was I guess they used nine hundred moving parts on the yes. alien head to, to and, make it work, and then they had to cover it in like jelly so that way it gets that slime look to it, so it would feel like even more menacing. I guess originally it was supposed to be um, 
almost, uh, you could see through it, so you would see, like, the inside of it. Oh, like the internal organs. Yeah, but then they ended up going with the stark black, which I'm really happy that they did, because I think it also really goes back to the beginning, which we were talking about, and all of just that, that white on the hallways and stuff, and then to build to this very stark, dark you know, villain character. Because it's, like, it's interesting because it's, like, a black, but it's, like, gray. Like, yeah. it's actually, I think, like, the, the true tone of it is, like, if you saw it in light, it's, like, got a, like yes. a gray yeah, yeah, color. Yeah, yes. yeah. But I think that's what makes it menacing, too, because you in the darker hallways, you have this thing that is gray, so it looks like the steel of the hallways. Mm-hmm. Like, so it looks yeah. like the materials the ship is made out of. Oh, yeah. Which makes it even more, like, dizzying trying to see it, like, operate through, um... And I think, like, the fact you talked about, like, all the moving parts is the voice also is actually, so the the creature noise um, was not manufactured digitally. This was actually an actor by the name of Percy Edwards. Um, his other credit is, I mean, I think there are a few more, but the notable one is he was the, he made the sounds in the movie Orca the Killer Whale. Oh, really? So those are not, like, Orca sounds. There's actually, okay. it's, it's an actor doing it, and he did the the sounds for the alien in this as well, which I think is kind of interesting. It's, yeah, quite. And I think, like, you know, so you talk about, at least we have, like, the very famous chestburster scene. I think it's impossible not to talk about this movie without, like, you know, paying, and as, as we have been, like, talking about why that scene is so influential, so parody, yeah, like, so greatly, and, yeah. and especially in Spaceballs, I think is one of the best. Hello, like, my baby. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I always appreciate when, like, if you have, like, space films that have, like, you know, references to songs of our times like obviously Spaceballs is very cheeky but you have that in this too because you have her singing you are my lucky star from singing in the rain I didn't know that song I was going to ask you about that it's at the end no, of no, singing no. in the rain oh okay got it okay, yeah. yeah yeah, yeah. It, sorry I, it didn't click to me I was going to ask you about it I had a feeling you would know yeah it's so you know and they had to really fight for the rights for that um, because she was doing it is the idea is that like she's trying to like settle herself down because she knows she needs to get like pretty this again why she's such an immense immense hero like she's trying to like settle herself down so she starts singing to herself and Ridley Scott loved it so much he went fighting for the rights for it because he was like this is the only way this can be because it works and it does work so well especially something that's pulled from like classic Hollywood cinema you know and and one of like the most iconic films so talking about the ending yes um a couple questions for you we haven't even talked about the cat though I just want to shout out to Jonesy (laughs) Jonesy is an interesting cat yeah what's your problem with the cat I find it the cat's adorable (laughs) it feels like it was needed to give Ridley something else to... Ripley! Call her oh, Ripley! Shoot. I can't believe I keep doing that. I mean, although everybody should be expecting it by, <laughs> right now. Um, Ripley, um, yeah, I, I just find it unnecessary. It gives us a couple of, you know, cat scares. So that's, you know... I, I don't know if that... I love Jonesy. <laughs> be on board with Jonesy. I, I will... is, is, is that supposed to be a reference in... Um, Captain Marvel or, you know, the orange cat or is the orange cat separate and was in the comic? I have no basis for this. I always assumed it was, though. Got it. Okay. Um, I assume that, and I don't know how it's drawn in the original comic. I can say I'm not a student of the Captain Marvel comics enough to know this, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's a reference to this. Um, Before we get towards the end, I do think we have to talk about there is something so intensely like we all talk about the chestburster scene of like how grotesque it is and how violent it is. But I actually think like Ash's 
the breaking down of his robot is so much more violent. Like, just squirting milk everywhere. Like, I don't know why. And maybe it's just, like, you know, years of conditioning. I think if he had squirted blood, I would have been more comfortable. It's the milk. It's so disturbing. His head, when it's talking, is just... Yeah. And I love the scene before that. I love the fight because it's just... It's raw. Like, yes. they, don't, they decided not to do any score over it, no music. It's just literally her and him fighting. Um, and it's it feels... You, you, you feel tense during that entire fight sequence. And you're just going, somebody come here and save, you know, until, you know, Yafit Kodo shows up and as Parker and, yeah. and saves. Like, you're just like, finally! Because... Yeah, it, it's... It's, so it's I think, the most, like, visceral violence that happens in it. There's almost something, like, I think Ash becomes more terrifying because, like, again, if this movie is a story of talking about, like, abject terror and monstrous motherhood and, like, penetration and phallic symbols and womb-like symbols, like, I think when you have something, it's, like, this is the ultimate, like, violation of, like, this was a part of their crew and they had no idea that the infection was already there because there is something about him that feels like an extension of this alien, even though they're, it's not like they're in cahoots, but it's this idea of kind of, like, the secret corporate agenda that they all don't know they've signed up for and there's something, like, very violating about that that I think has to come back to what you said earlier of like the notion of like how like economic or socioeconomic status is kind of talked about at the beginning of the film you know ash feels like an extension of that like this is the trust and faith you've put into the quote-unquote company and then that turns against you in the most violent ways that this person that you know takes on this role of doctor and protector becomes like such an abstraction of what that role is supposed to be and i think seeing his head broken him talking still it just feels like there's so much about this world that they're in that they don't know and you think like by them being on a spaceship and being explorers and having all of this and such attention paid to all the technology that's around them that they would have some greater knowledge but as humans we're so prey no matter how advanced our technology is in we are prey to the technology we put our faith into, including the doctor we put our faith into, you know, and the fact that he's not, which is a really important, I think, test that we see for Ripley of like how she handles that and, and, and getting out of that situation for your, right, the setup of the finale where we have these amazing chase sequences through these long hallways. What I like about Ash's character and how they choose to do this character is you know, we're we're surprised as an audience on the reveal that he is uh, a robot. Um, but what I like is that we're not surprised that he's villainous or, um, you know, I, I think throughout the entire... It's not this big twist of, oh, we're, the nice guy all of a sudden was the one behind it all, doing all these things. Like, I really appreciate that he's kind of a jerk yeah. <laughs> through the whole thing. Yes. Like, you're not really... Sh- like, And it doesn't feel like the reveal that he is an alien is so out of place, which I really uh, admire uh, about that aspect of it no and so well said because you're right there's no it's it's both shocking and not like he's he's not set up to be our friend early (laughs) in the film but i think also there's a thing that's set up here of like kinship but no friendship on the ship like sorry i just said ship a lot but like you know except for maybe brett and parker i think are the only kind of bond that you see and i think everyone is like operating kind of in their own pause as to what they need to do it feels like kind of like genuine co-worker relationships in a lot of ways Like, there's not this intense bond that's being created between these people, but they're really just, like, kind of cogs in this larger machine, which, again, is this company uh, 
Which, which we don't know in this film. No, we don't. And it's. In, I was just actually about to make reference to it, but it's like you don't know that till the sequels. Of yeah. This, I mean, you know there's a company aspect of this, but you don't really know a lot about the company till later it's, on. Is Mother the worst magic eight ball of all time? Yeah, a hundo <laughs> percent. <laughs> I'm like, my mother's just like, what are your chances? Do not commute. I'm like... <laughs> yeah. Like, Ask again later. <laughs> it really does. And it feels like there's a lot of lights in this little room for you not to give that much information. Um, so who's the real villain? Is it uh, the, the company or is it the Society. Xenomorph? Society. <laughs> um, the Xenomorph. Like, I... You think it's the company? I'm going to I'm gonna defend the Xenomorph. <laughs> the Xenomorph impregnates someone against their will. The Xenomorph is trying to survive and live. That's the interesting thing I really was found interesting in this movie. The Xenomorph does not hunt them. They hunt him and he's protect him or her. Yeah, or them. Yeah, Let's or say them, them because yeah, we them. like a gender. Uh, it. Can we say it? Because yeah. it's a, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it's just protecting itself. They, you know, if anybody's coming at me with a flamethrower, I'm going to come after it. No, you're not. You're going to run away. No, you are not going towards the person See, with the flamethrower. Again, fair. <laughs> but again, unlike Predator, which Predator is, you know, Predator's trying to literally hunt them down. You in this movie. <laughs> the, the alien is not. The xenomorph not trying to. I find it really interesting. I love it about it because I find it like, yeah, they have to, to stop it because it's it's threaten them as well, but, like, neither really... If they could just find a way to coexist, they would be okay. Listen, I... I between your defending of Leatherface back <laughs> in the beginning of season three, and now you're defending the alien that forcefully impregnates, like, members of the ship, I think we just gotta really talk about where your morals lie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Life finds a way. <laughs> Speaking of sequels nobody needs. Um, but I... I wonder, you know, maybe Ridley Scott will hear this and he'll be like, you know what, Ryan Tassie, that's a great idea. I'm actually going to retell the first movie because we can just de-age everyone. Um, I'm going to retell the movie, but it's going to be from the alien's perspective. And like, he just wanted to like adopt the kitty. Like, was that, like just wanted a, a pal and Jonesy. Uh, you know what? I, I The only the argument to be made on uh, for against my idea, though, is the Brett scene, which mm. to me is by far the most scary scene it's terrifying um again we talked a lot about patience by ridley scott in this movie and there's a lot of patience in building that scene although i'm not quite sure why we have rain coming into the spaceship like that or the water coming down so no it's referenced earlier because there's something that's like malfunctioning that i think is supposed to and you see like the dripping water coming down and i think you're supposed to think that there are things visually it's it's amazing yeah i think you're supposed to think that there were like machines that needed to be tended to because it's 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 very early in the film but there's like this slow water coming down and it feels like kind of the threat of like, you know, the things that can go wrong with this ship. And if you, especially if you introduce something that's like a foreign body to this space, like what potential like disasters could happen, especially as you point out earlier in the podcast, like Brett and Parker being like so key to the survival yeah. of the ship itself. Yeah, I really, um, I think that scene is just paced amazing. I, I find it so tense scary um it's really builds up it's really nice well and i think this this movie is a game of tension it's because like you know we don't the xenomorph doesn't like have a lot of like hand-to-hand combat sequences like with its like victims or i'm sorry like with the people that are hunting it as you would say um but i think like the fact that you have like so much is built upon like what we don't see like any great monster movie would be um and then also additionally like just kind of the escape 
escape. Like, the scenes of, like, Ripley kind of running down the hallway trying to get to the pod in time. Like, all of these things, like, it's just such a, again, like, a masterclass in, like, pacing your tension out so it feels like when something does happen, like, it feels like a reward to that tension. It's not, oh, like, yeah. it's not overwrought. It's not undersold. Like, and so when, the, particularly, like, Brett's death, I completely agree with you. Like, there's something really kind of tragic about that moment and it, and it does feel like it is like intense payoff of like now the game because like the thing is is like i would say the movie doesn't stop with the tension from the time the chest burster happens in terms of that type of pacing but the whole entire film is just yeah you're waiting for it you're waiting for it. you know it's coming like yeah, you know, and this is gonna be dallas coming. who was he brave or was he foolish foolish dallas is okay but that whole thing and 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 lambert yelling like it's there it's there and you can't see it yeah um i i again those are are really you know i I think dallas and lambert are both uh case studies in arrogance i think there is an element of like that's being done here of you know and maybe a kind of commentary on colonialism the notion of like they just kind of believe they'll be safe in these spaces or that they can outwit these spaces of things that they have no idea what they're what communities and spaces they're entering but just believe that like they'll come out on top because they have no reason to think that they won't but i think like dallas and lambert they're just intensely arrogant as to especially dallas because i don't think he knows to sense the impending danger despite the fact you saw an alien pop out of someone's chest like moments before but you don't know to like be a little bit more on guard yeah or that you have no defense against a thing who has a defense mechanism of acid that could eat apart your ship do you believe uh, um and i also the whale was it whalen industries that we find out later is that their name whalen Industries. yeah yeah. um I, i still go back to i think that they probably are the villain because right they they say legitimately the crew is expendable. Yes, they we do. We find out through yes. others. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, it's... <laughs> that's got to be brutal. That's got to hurt when like, you read that. Like, ouch. <laughs> then why do you give us such nice sleep chambers you're if we're expendable? Right. No, you're not wrong. I think there is something of, like, you're sending these people on space exploration. You're having them, you know, obviously mine in these other places probably because as human beings we've not taken climate change seriously and now we have to go off world to, like, get stuff. Like, I think the idea of this like company structure that like just sees them as bodies and knows that they're somewhat expendable i think you're supposed to think that they are somewhat well compensated i think this probably would have a lot of like modern comparisons to like like oil drilling i think probably has a lot of like modern comparisons to this like or even comparisons at the time um so no there is something i think that is definitively more monstrous about the villain that is hiding it's villainy underneath care and structure versus the alien, which, or the xenomorph, which is, I mean, I'll go with your point, defending itself. Like this is maybe a story of self-defense or trying to survive and seeing it's kind of opportunity to survive. Jesus, do you have me defending the alien? What is this podcast? <laughs> That's what we're here for. Uh, so, uh, I have, a, oh, sorry. I had a couple of quick questions for you. Go for it. Okay. So do you think this movie is as successful with the original title? Starbeast. No. <laughs> no one sees... Starbeast sounds like a, a film that would be behind a curtain at your old rental stores. It does not sound like this film. <laughs> All right. I agree with you. Did So Ridley Scott, we talked about... We touched about this a little bit earlier. Ridley Scott was supposed to make another film at the time. He goes and sees Star Wars and realizes... I need to stop this film that I'm supposed to direct because, yeah, I could do it. It's going to be a fine film, but I have no passion for it. And he looks at Star Wars and says, I need that passion. That's what I want to do. Yes. 
Do you think he should have went back and made Tristan and his old like he was supposed to? <laughs> no, nobody needs that story. Yeah, we know that Shakespeare stole it, but we don't need it. All right. And then my other two questions are deleted scenes, kind of. Um, first one is the very famous deleted scene of Ridley Ripley <laughs> finds Dallas and Brett in a cocoons. Dallas is still alive and asking her to kill him. She ends up, unfortunately, having to flamethrower him. Throw him. Do you think that scene should have stayed in the movie? No. Okay. I think leaving their deaths where it's at makes more sense. Um, I think knowing that, is there a notion of like, okay, well, you know, when when Kane got attacked, he got a face hugger put on him. Yeah. So I don't know that we should take that everyone dies right away or maybe they're being transformed into something else. But I think just kind of leaving it more ambiguous is better for the film. Well, but Kane needs to birth it, right? Like that we see. Yes. Because my understanding is we actually see the entire lifespan. Of the xenomorph, Of the xenomorph. Right? Yeah. Like the xenomorph is actually supposed to be dying of quote unquote old age when we see it fighting Ripley at the end. Oh, it's why it's moving that. slower. It's never obviously explained. I believe some of this gets changed as we get to later films. Yeah. Uh, it's also why the cocoon deleted scene wouldn't work because I believe it doesn't make sense to the, what the later films The life cycle give. wouldn't make yeah. sense, yeah. So those types of things don't, you know, so I'm with you. I don't, the biggest one, and I know your feeling is going to be, no, it should not be in there, but there's a different original ending. Do you know the ending? No. So I'm the worried. original ending is actually supposed to be when Ripley harpoons the alien and this is legitimate. The alien, uh, the alien doesn't stop and actually rips off Ripley's head and kills Ripley, and then comes up to the screen. Um, and when the home base or whatever attaches, the alien speaks to it in an, in an exact replica of Tom Skerritt's voice as Dallas, and says everything's fine, signing off. And that's how the movie was supposed to end. <laughs> Um, I guess the producers told Rip, uh, Ridley Scott, literally, if you shoot that ending, you're fired. <laughs> wow. Um, I'm, I'm with them to a point. Here's the thing. I think that sounds like a great ending for a Predator movie. Um, <laughs> I actually agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, here's where I think that doesn't feel well placed. You're building this character to that it, that this is not a fight of brute strength, but a fight of intellect, uh, like special intellect. Like I think having it end that way, I don't think. Well, one, you don't get repeat performances by Sigourney Weaver, which is a shame. And then, additionally, I think then you you have to set everything earthbound because the ship's going to be heading back to Earth. I don't know if that works as well. Um, no, I just I don't like it. And and maybe that's me being precious about the original ending, but I feel like. A lot of the things you're trying to bring to fruition and a lot of the commentary you're trying to make kind of goes out quite literally out the window if all of a sudden that's your ending. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, there's an interesting part that wants to see the alien do the voice thing. Yeah, well, yeah, you've seen Independence Day, so you've seen it. <laughs> Fair. But no, I don't, I agree with you. It doesn't work. The movie doesn't last, have the same lasting appeal, in my opinion. Um, we need... Ripley to be the character that she is. So with you saying that about long-lasting appeal, you know, something that we introduced during our Vision Quest episode is the notion of the hold-up. And I think you and I think about this question in a lot of ways. In some ways it can be like, hey, what things are way too regressive in a film that you can't feel comfortable watching it or talking about it? But I think this is for this because of how this film is positioned and how we've talked about it. Do you think this movie still works? Is it still scary? Yes. 
I Good. do. Um, I think it works with a modern audi- audience uh, completely. Um, I think it has all that tension. I, I do. I think it's still scary. You don't. Th- I have a question. Do you not find this movie scary? I don't find this movie being a horror movie. That's my <gasps> argument. Fine. Here we go. Right, let me roll up my <laughs> sleeves. So I think there. You can look at this film one of three ways. It is either a science fiction film. It is a horror film. Or it is a sci-fi horror film. I have a fourth. You have a fourth? Sci-fi thriller. Okay, so okay. So I are given that you've introduced a fourth option, <laughs> um, do you find this to be more of a sci-fi thriller? Is that where you would position it? Yes. Uh, yes. I mean, you can't there's too much, like you said, there there is tension and scary. So there's too much of that to just label it just purely sci-fi. I mean you know, what are we going to compare that to? Uh, Star Trek? Like, it's... Or, like, 2001. I mean, like, Sigourney Weaver looks like a beatific, all-knowing space baby at the end of the movie, but, like, <laughs> I don't think that means it's just a sci-fi film. But you don't mind 2001 scary, though? Nah. Wait! Yeah. Hal, Wait. Hal is terrifying! Hal is kind of terrifying. <laughs> uh, but, So's the space baby! Well, that's fair. <laughs> that thing's um, not right. <laughs> But no, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm with you. Uh, it, it, that would be my only thing. I have a hard time. You know, you did a really fun, like, um, family feud type thing with Arts Quest, uh, like, two years ago. And horror movies came up top five. And I think the number one at that time was Alien. I just have a hard time putting that next to Exorcist or Halloween as a horror film. It's I think it deserves to be in this talk of greatest movies of all time. I just when you I just can't put it into the horror genre for some reason. Um, here's the thing. I expected because I knew this would come up because of your like vague hints at like it's not a horror movie anytime I would mention that that it was. <laughs> um, I think it's sci-fi horror. I think it's that blend of genre that makes it hard to pin down. I wouldn't label it a thriller to me, like the creature effect alone, the fact that this functions very much like a haunted house, the fact that you have a final girl, um, to me all marks it as a horror film. Um, I find the movie scary. Now, the movie is something I've watched since I was younger. I still do find it scary. Um but, you know, it's also like, well, what do you define as a horror film? Does a horror film have to scare me? Well, like, I think The House on Haunted Hill is a horror movie, but it doesn't scare me. Like, you know, it's charming more than it's more fair. than scary. So I think this, to me, functions very similarly in pattern and in tone as a horror film. I think overarching, if, I ha- if you have to say it's one or the other... I guess the argument it would be appropriate to say it's a sci-fi film, but I think it's sci-fi horror. Can I ask you a question? Do you count the thing as horror? I see, I do, and I know we feel differently yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. and I, to me, actually, the thing is a really apt comparison because I would label that pure horror. I wouldn't even think about putting the sci-fi element to it, although it's very clearly there. But these are the very similar films in that way. Agreed. I, I agree with you. If you, depending on what you feel about one, you have to feel about the other. Yeah, so I would say then this is all, these are both horror films. I wouldn't label these as both sci-fi films. Yeah. Again, another, like, expert creature feature. Well, I'm curious the day that you get to see Predator, 
that how you feel where that falls. You just put me on blast. <laughs> I've been roasting this movie for an hour and 17 minutes, and you just decide to finally tell the audience I've never seen Predator. If I'm going down for Alien, you're going down for Predator. You shouldn't be going down for Alien. But you, you should say this is a genius movie. End of podcast. But you've seen some of the sequels of Predator. You know enough about Predator. You you have. Well, a I've seen on it. Alien versus Predator and then Beyond. Yeah. That that point, I've just never seen the original. Yeah, Predator. which is much better than anything any of the other sequels. But um, really quick with the holdup, you know, as we talked about that. The other thing I have to ask though is, and the holdup here might literally be a literal thing too. What's where do we stand on on putting her in the underwear at the in the back part of this movie? I I, I feel like it's an unnecessary decision. I don't because I believe how the underwear is structured is more a function of environment and her about to return to that womb-like state. I don't find it to be over sexualized. That is not a push-up bra. I'll say from a f- like looking at this like through a feminist lens, I feel like the fabric is structured to indicate strength of body and not sexuality of body. Those underwear? Yes. All right. It's a standard brief. I'm telling you now. I feel very strongly about that. I'm going to be smart enough right now to leave it to Uh female co-hosts and just move on from there. Here's the thing. I don't, I, we can't account for how people interpret it by what their subjective experiences of sexuality. However, I do not think in that moment that that scene is filmed or that the costume designer structured that in a way to make it abjectly sexual. And I do think that there is a decision there to also give the character as much vulnerability as absolutely possible. And it's, sterile it's medical Mm -hmm. it's meant to function as i think putting her again like if we kind of see that ending moment of like her in sleep as like this like again like beatific space baby like i think there's something like about it that feels very sterile medical and back into like a womb-like space to me it works i don't find it to be like you know unfortunately what we see in a lot of horror films where there's an end moment where like for whatever reason the female character has to be stripped down to like barely anything in order for her to survive you know like i don't feel like it's that moment whatsoever feel very strongly about their decisions in that moment all right and now i gotta ask top five final girl yeah do you think it's the top pop final girl no laura Strode is awesome i like that <laughs> no I, sydney prescott yeah all right um here i find ripley very influential because like and i'll say this like so looking at my experience like so obviously i saw this like very young um you know there weren't a lot of Final girls that functioned in really strong ways growing up, like for me. In, in my film watching, a lot of it was, you know, women were kind of sidelined, I think, to very specific. And I didn't see Halloween until I was like in eighth grade, which makes it seem like I saw it really late. But for me, that's like late that I saw Halloween. Like, you know, so seeing Laurie Strode, like, and I think like the quote unquote trope of final girl, um, not that I think it's a trope, I think it's an important function of the horror genre or, you know, in, in, in sci-fi genre as well. I think like Ripley stood, like you have like Ripley and you've got like Princess Leia and they come out at really foundational parts um, of the advancement of the genres. And I think also as like beacons of like, this is what should be done. This is how we write female characters. This is how we give women agency in films. This is how we don't make them victims of their circumstance or damsels in distress. This is how we give them a space, no pun intended, but a space to operate from a place of strength and agency. Do you feel that Ripley still has the same, all of the same things without the sequels? Yes. Yes. 
Okay. Yeah, so. I would say actually, I think the strongest foundation of understanding Ripley as a character is the first film. I think the things that happen. I think we referenced this earlier, um, and we can talk about this in terms of like the sequel, remake, reboot, you yeah. know, section that we you know have added into the podcast. You know, the interesting thing about this is we don't get to fantasize about what this looks like in the next chapter because there were other chapters. Um, and they do turn her into something that I believe functions more like an action star, which I think I said earlier in the episode. Um, so it makes it... And I know you've not seen Aliens. I have not. And you've not seen Alien 3. I, I No. <laughs> so or was a re- Alien Resurrection, right? So you've not experienced, like, the continuation of, like, Ripley's character. I have not, no. So, all right, I'll ask you this, and I won't be spoilery in nature because I do want you to see those films. Not Alien 3, but I want you to see Aliens. What would you imagine the story going forward, pretending like there were no sequels? I... I don't know if I can okay. remove it. I know yeah. enough about this That's character fair. over the years to only see it that way. I mean, otherwise I'm visualizing it as a one-off film that goes back and essentially tries to take down, you know, the company that, um, you know. <laughs> Do you know what I'm just realizing? You saw Prometheus before you ever saw this. That's fair. Yes. What's yeah. that experience like? I'm, nobody knows what Prometheus was about, so I don't think I really the- have <laughs> worry about that. Okay, so you 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 don't like the prequels attempts or what they okay, are. Okay, I actually enjoy um Alien Covenant. Okay. But I understand why people would hate it. Um and seeing this movie, people that love this movie, I can completely understand why they really dislike Covenant. You know, it's kind of like the reboot of the thing, um the or the prequel of the thing where yeah. you're like you didn't you lost some of the magic of what made those films timeless and special and all timers because you kind of fast tracked them a little bit. Um, even though this was done by uh, Ridley Scott. Um, but I, I, I enjoyed it enough. Prometheus. No, I, I find to be just nonsensical. <laughs> I think the problem is, is like, there's very much like an, in a decision here of like, we're going to really build the mythos. And I think it was presented as we're going to answer some questions, not like how Rogue One answers questions about a plot hole and like New Hope, but rather like we're going to like give you the history. And then the history was so confounding. And then it just fell back into form of like, well, we still need people getting chased and impregnated by an alien. <laughs> but like, so then the history component of it, I think that you were trying to explore kind of seems like it never really happens. I, I, I heard recently somebody talking about this where it was, you know, these are there are some directors out there that are going back to the well for these films that no one's asking for, and it's like, are is anybody asking for an alien, more alien content? Um, and the problem is, I think he, if Ridley Scott really wanted to do it, he should have sequeled out instead of prequeled yeah. out. Like you're saying, you're trying to fix holes or trying to explain to something that nobody really want it or need it. Yeah. <laughs> a version of this like if I had like a fantasy sequel and I'm thinking in the realm of like the like what is it being called like now a legacy sequel yeah um you know kind of like Halloween 2018 like I would see like Ripley coming back but now like the focus has been that you know they know about the alien and they're kind of trying to go to the original home planet and like take out like a store of eggs and she's got like a ragtag crew and you kind of have like a Brett and Parker type characters to add that comedic relief and they're played by Ben Schwartz <laughs> <laughs> and Bill Hader. I'm bowing to you. 
Thank you. <laughs> I am totally down for this. I believe Sign I me up. Me. <laughs> but speaking of recasting. Yes. Um, so I, we're agreeing. There's no prequel, sequel, remake, reboot on this because they already are every one of those. Yes. Um, but there was a recasting what if, I guess you could say, um, which was it came down to Sigourney Weaver or Meryl Streep. Um, Meryl Streep ends up, they ended up deciding not to go with Meryl Streep because sadly she had a boyfriend who had just literally recently passed away. That's right, And they felt that the, it wasn't going to be the right, she wasn't going to be in the right, you know, emotional space for this type of film and they didn't want to put her through that so they chose to go with Sigourney Weaver. Um, seeing the trajectory of their filmography and, and where Meryl Streep goes, it's hard to ever see her in this role um, because of the types of, I mean, she's obviously an all-time great actress, but it's hard to ever see her in this film. Could you see a version of this with her? Yeah, I'm thinking about Meryl Streep in the 70s, and I don't think it's that far off base. I think the thing that she would imbue it with is, and not just because of that, portion of like her life but there was like a tragedy I think she would imbue like Ripley with I also think there would be a sense of um frustration that she knows she's not being heard in those moments where she is the more reasonable figure I think Meryl Streep would have brought that to it I think it could be interesting it's just hard for me to see it as anyone but Sigourney Weaver but I think Meryl Streep could have done something with it that would be different but very valid to that story But again, it's Sigourney Weaver's part, and I don't think I can see it any other way. So interestingly with that, um, we talk about, like, performances. Obviously, Meryl Streep gets nominated for, like, a bajillion Oscars. Um, So certainly her career subsists very nicely, even without getting Alien. But as long as we are in Oscar season and bringing in a new category called To Oscar or Not. Mm -hmm. um, So this movie was nominated for Oscars and actually does win one. So it wins for Best Visual Effects, which is not surprising at all. It was nominated for Best Art Direction. It loses to All That Jazz, which I do not understand for the life of me how it doesn't win. Academy's got an academy. (laughs) It's very clear. But, like, you know, so it was nominated. So in Best Art Direction, it was All That Jazz, Alien, Apocalypse Now, The China Syndrome, and Star Trek The Motion Picture. I could make an argument for Apocalypse Now winning. I can make an argument for Star Trek The Motion Picture, but 100% this should have gone to Alien. I find it absurd. In Best Directing that year, it was Robert Benton won for Kramer versus Kramer. Um, Francis Ford Coppola was nominated for Apocalypse Now. Um... Eduardo Molinaro was um, nominated for La Caja Faux, uh, Peter Yates for Breaking Away, and Bob Fosse for All That Jazz. How does Ridley Scott not get nominated? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I look at the Best Picture category on this, and I look at the Best Director, and I'm with you. Um, and it's nothing, it's no shot at La Caja Foles or Breaking, La, yeah. uh, Breaking Away or even All That Jazz. Like, but... Really? Yeah. <laughs> I'm it's, also going to make an argument. How did Apocalypse Now not beat out Kramer versus Kramer? I'm confused. <laughs> for best picture or and or best director. Well, I also like look at, and with like no shade to Norma Ray, but the, the, the thing that we all talk about with Norma Ray is the performance by Sally Field, which wins that yeah. year. And, and that makes a lot of sense to me. But I am confused how Alien is not a best picture over Norma Ray. Like it doesn't, I, I, all that jazz, I completely understand. Apocalypse Now, in truth, I've never seen Breaking Away, so it would be false for me to say whether or not that belongs in the conversation or not. But I've seen Norma Ray. I don't know how Alien gets in, and I definitively do not understand how Kramer versus Kramer wins over Apocalypse Now or Alien if Alien had been nominated. Breaking Away is a good movie. It just doesn't 
it's not Apocalypse Now. It's yeah. not Kramer, even Kramer versus Kramer or Alien. Like, yeah. it's just, they're not. <laughs> There's a scale and scope, I think, to those other films that, like, it, it doesn't make sense to me, like, why you, you know, or, or it's something a little more intimate. Like, you know, essentially it's, you know, the 1970s version of Marriage Story. So, like, <laughs> you know, or I'm sorry, Marriage Story is the modern yeah, version yeah, yeah, of Kramer yeah. versus Kramer, <laughs> to correct myself. Um but yeah, it, it's an interesting thing to think about. So would you have given it, it should get a Best Picture nomination? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely should have been nominated for a Best Picture. I mean, I feel like the Academy's feeling the horror end of this as opposed yeah. to the sci-fi. They're a little more, you know, willing to listen to sci-fi as yeah. they are to horror. Um, but I, yeah, it's a, it's a shame. Um, but, you know, that happens, I guess. Uh, but to me, I don't know if it wins um, over Apocalypse Now. Um, but... Even, but even Apocalypse Now didn't win. It was Kramer versus Kramer, so I don't know. Well, and also, too, like, you think, like, the score should have been nominated. It just, it, it honestly feels like this was a movie that they just went, we're going to we're gonna nominate it for visual effects, and it's going to get that. And we're going to nominate it for art direction, but for some reason it's not going to get that. And I've seen all that jazz, and I'm not quite understanding that decision there. But, yeah, it does feel like that bias that they have against, um, yeah. quote-unquote, genre films that they and don't I'm get okay by. I'm okay with Sigourney Weaver not getting nominated here. To yeah. be fair, I don't know a, a large majority of the, the people that were – the roles that were nominated sure. that year. But even at that, as I think – Sigourney Weaver's fantastic. However, that that rolls very pared down at points of the movie, so I don't yeah. know if it, it would stand out for this type of award. Well, as you sharply pointed out, like the first part of the film, it's kind of hard to identify who the lead character is, and I don't think that that's an incorrect thing. And that could be why it's not in a best actress conversation, or again, it could be the genre aspect yeah, of yeah. it all. But I, I guess I'm just comparing it straight up to Norma Ray, and it's like. Yeah, you're yeah, going to go Sally Field there, but... Yeah, 100%. I mean, I really appreciate getting to talk about this film. I think this is one of the all-time greats. I'm glad you have this gap in your film knowledge, like, filled, because I think it's kind of absurd that you didn't, especially as a love of sci-fi and horror. Not, but I think anyone should see this film, and I think it holds up brilliantly, not for only for its incredible tension, the influence that it has, but also it is just a great film. It's enjoyable. It's scary. It has like really well developed characters and they're developed in a short period of time because they certainly start getting bumped off after a period. So I'm glad we got to talk about this film at the start of our season four of our podcast. Me too. I'm excited for the films that we're going to be bringing to everybody this season. Um, I think we started off with a, a really strong film here, a film that I, I do genuinely really, really do love. Because you freaked me out at the beginning <laughs> of the episode. Um, but yeah, I'm excited about season four and what's to come. So if you're not currently following us on social media, please follow us at How Could You Podcast on Instagram at how could you pod on Twitter. You can always email us suggestions and your thoughts at how could you podcast at gmail.com. We're always happy to hear from you. And until next time, enjoy the Odyssey. Mm-hmm.